This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome in to the Otzen Audibles podcast. Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show today. It's Monday October 23rd, it means it's a mailbag Monday. We open up the mailbag. We field questions. Uh, a lot of these are geared towards this weekend, maybe some big picture type stuff. And one, I, I, I think there's a couple topics in here. I'd like, I was really hoping Eric would pick. Um, I, I just so I, I rolled through the, the, the questions that you were running through that you asked, and a couple of them hit, made the list. So uh, thank you for that. And why don't you introduce the first question? Well, Matt. First off, what did I miss? Was there something that we wanted to talk about that we we aren't talking about? We can we can pivot. Oh no, no, no! I just the um, the red zone offensive questions. Oh yeah, um, that was one that wanted to come up, and um, you didn't select the one of critiquing the offense, the criticism of the offense. But we went on kind of a rant at the end of the podcast on Saturday night, so it wasn't like I needed to to talk about that again but if it was going to be on there i was ready you're ready okay well we can t- I mean, we can always talk about that if we want um let's jump into that red zone question you you mentioned which is the first question from at scott million hashtag Otsnotables. what's your take on the red zone issues better teams limit explosive plays which has been our bread and butter um you know the red zone issues are are obviously prevalent right now or that I guess that's a talking point just because of what happened up in Seattle with a couple where obviously they were forced to go for it on fourth and they didn't get it on the season. The numbers are pretty, pretty darn good. Um, they've been in the red zone 37 times, 32 times. They've come away with points, 27 times with touchdowns. Both of those are top half, half of the conference, not at the top, but respectable conversion rates. Um, I, I, I think it just becomes difficult down there. You know, and like we saw this last year too, um, a couple of times. And this is the part of the field where good defenses make plays. This is the part of the field where make good defenses make it hard on good offenses. Uh, I don't necessarily think there's like something super underlying there. Um, one thing I will note that played into Oregon's some of Oregon's success last year we haven't seen a lot of this year is is utilizing Bo's legs, especially right around the goal line. Anybody who watched Sunday Night Football last night with Philadelphia, anytime it was like within a yard, it was like 100%. They were just going to quarterback sneak it and take it. We haven't seen a ton of that this year. We did see a little bit of it last weekend with him sneaking, I think, on a third down play and also obviously keeping it on a on, on a goal line run for a touchdown. So um, I think that's a component of it that maybe we'll continue to see more of to the Part about better teams limiting explosive plays, that's obviously true. Um, I was surprised looking at this. I was thinking this could transition into Utah talk, but the Utes are actually right at the bottom of the Pac-12 and giving up explosive plays. They've given up 11 over 40. Um, some of that could be the caliber of offenses they've faced this year, but I did think that stood out. The only defense the rest of the way that's really 
really good there is Oregon State. They've only allowed two plays mm-hmm. all season over 40. So um, certainly there will be teams that are able to limit some of those explosives. Oregon is really good at creating them. But um, it's not going to be this week, at least based upon the trends this season. Um, I'll toss it over to Jared. I, I, I kind of said my spiel there on the red zone. Are there, I guess, are there things I'm missing in terms of what you'd like to see around the goal line more of? I mean, I think it's just a subject of conversation because of uh, obviously the Washington loss and you know a couple of those fourth downs decision making specifically were or was in the red zone. Um, a lot of this, I think, comes down to execution. I think I, I, this is all I talked about basically after the Washington week of this was a good game plan, just poor execution, good ideas, lack of execution, and that red zone percentage looks a lot better if. Onyx throws a better ball to Trayshawn Holden on third down. If on the fourth down pass to Troy Franklin, um, that was designed to go to Franklin, uh, if Nix reads it a little bit better and sees Holden over the middle again for a second touchdown, then that red zone look is a lot better. But these are all hindsight things. They're all subject to interpretation as well, um, but it's a lot easier to call it out after the fact. And um, I'm, I'm going to try not to do that and just go with whatever Oregon has done already in the red zone. Um, they're actually operating at a higher level than they did last year in the red zone. They're converting at 86.5%, uh, 23. Last year was 84.29. Um, I remember this conversation we had about this team and the red zone deficiencies last season. Um, you know, their their number of red zone opportunities is probably going to be smaller than the average team just because they're going to score from farther away. Um, they went four for four in the red zone against Washington State. I, I, I don't really have any issues with their red zone offense i think they're fine i think they do the job i think that they're going to score more points from outside the red zone than more than anything else um and like eric like you said it just it does get harder in the red zone there's just way less room to work with and a lot of that goes into oregon's offense where they get balls in space to receivers that's will signs like main thing it's like hey we got all these good players let's give them the ball in space see what they can do and the red zone, there's just not as much space. So it gets harder, but um, they've got a good offensive line. I just think it's kind of the talk of the town because of the decisions at Washington and you know some missed field goals here and there that that don't make it look better. Uh, the explosion plays question, because I don't need to talk about the, the red zone one. Um, Oregon's an explosion play is 15 yards or more on the ground and 20 or more yards through the air. Um, and from just a opponent longest yard, 20 or more from, you know, scrimmage plays this season, uh, Oregon is 21st in the country. And I think last year's defense was viewed in a, uh, window of they were really good they didn't give up explosion plays they they were um they made they made their opponents basically go down the field and beat and beat them right like that's that's the general view of of what oregon's defense was like last season well guess what the percentages of explosion plays allowed per game is the exact same from this season to last season so like they're right there um and I just think this is a byproduct of look at the teams that you have played this season through the first half of the year, Washington state, Colorado and Washington. Like those are teams that are going to create big play. You disagree, Jared? 
No, no, no. I just thought the uh, I thought the question was about Oregon's red zone, or excuse me, Oregon's uh, downfield offense compared to upcoming defenses that they're going to play and how that was. Oh, going I, to I interpret this as them. You know, okay. Well, same thing. Oregon's explosive plays don't have issues. Like they're creating. You know, it, it, why does it matter if if your offense is producing the the highest scoring offense in the country? It's generating some of the most yards in the country per game perspective. Why does it matter if it has to come through one play or three plays? Um, Oregon's offense is good enough to score 50-something points a game uh, or thereabouts. I can't remember what the updated number is, but uh, I I don't think there's – issues with the offense right now, I mean, we can gripe about the red zone you know, efficiency or maybe the lack of execution, sure, but the overall – premise from my perspective of the offense is this is a really good offense. They're number two in the country in scoring uh, total offense. They're number two in, in the country. Um, they move the ball, they score touchdowns and they do it in a balanced way. There's not really right. a, a ton to, to gripe about in my opinion. Like, could they be better? Absolutely, but they're clearly one of the best offenses in the country, and I don't think these games, you know, they're, they've never put themselves in a position where, boy, like how many times this season, or really in Dan Lanning's era, where have you have you gone into a game and been like, boy, I don't know if Oregon is going to be able to move the football. Like even when Bo Nix got hurt against Washington and came back the next week against Utah, you were like, okay, they maybe won't have the run game, but they're going to have the passing attack. They'll still be able to, to move the football somewhat. Um, I, there has been zero concern in my mind going into any game, maybe outside of Georgia, where you're like, this team's not, you know, scoring 17 points is going to be hard for this team. Where the last head coach, Multiple times, multiple games, you saw three or four straight punts by an offense. Has, has Dan Lanning has take away the Georgia game because that Georgia team was just special. Has 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 an Oregon team under Dan Lanning had a game where they've punted four times in a row? Um, not that, not that I specifically remember. Yeah, so and I, certainly not this year. No, this offense is really, yeah. really good, and we're just nitpicking at this point, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I agree. They're multiple, which 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 gives them the uh, a lot of benefits. You know, Washington State took away their their deep shot attack. You know, they only connected on one or two, I guess, explosive uh, pass plays. But Bonex still threw for like three hundred yards. They still almost collected like five hundred fifty yards of total offense, five forty one for the second straight game. Like they're 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 not going to have a problem. I think the. Uh, the Oregon State game is going to provide difficulties just because that's a good secondary. Um, their secondary, their their cornerbacks are a bit small, but you know, with, uh, Troy Franklin should have an advantage there. But that's a good good secondary. It's a good overall defense. I think Utah is going to provide some issues, even though they they are, you know, last in the Pac-12 and and those forty-yard explosive plays, which I thought was really interesting. But um, that's just it's Utah. It's always going to be a good defense. It's always going to provide a lot of difficulties, even though this Oregon offense is really humming. Um, kind of goes to the the quick start question that I'm sure we're going to get to later in the show. Yeah, and, and to the, the Utah defense part, I mentioned the explosive plays. This is one of the better red zone defenses in the conference, though. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Kind of crazy. They've only faced 15 red zone trips in seven games this season. That speaks to how good they play over there. And only seven of those 15 trips have gone for opposing touchdowns, 11 for or, uh, 11 total for score. So four field goals mixed in. Utes are tough. And in Salt Lake, that, and that's another part of this too, if, if we want to be real, is you know we talk about execution, maybe having issues down there. Well, where have they had execution issues? It's been in road games. You know, you think about the way they opened right. this last or this last time up at Washington with those with those problems. Um, at Tech, they didn't exactly punch it in with this same level of consistency in terms of converting red zone trips into touchdowns. Um, Stanford game was just wonky. Those wasn't about red zone. They just couldn't get the mm-hmm. ball moving. And once they did get the ball moving, it worked. But mm-hmm. two of the three games this year where you've seen, I guess, kind of some red zone problems, it's been on the road. So at, 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 I think Rice Eccles is going to be won't be Husky Stadium, maybe, but it's kind of on that same tier to me in terms of just tough road environments in this conference. Maybe, it, I mean, most years, maybe it would be. I think this year, with with kind of all that was on the line in the Oregon-Washington series, like that was Husky Stadium at its best. If, if Rice Eccles Stadium's at its best, it's right there with Husky Stadium. It's right comparable. There with, yeah. Right there mm-hmm. with Otts and right there with those program with those stadiums as the best in this conference right now. So We'll see if that plays a role too. Is just the road environment. I guess that's something to keep an eye on. And if they come out of this game and they, I think I think they're going to win this football game. But let's say in this hypothetical they lose and they lose because they do go two for six in red zone trips and miss that. You know they miss some field goals or they get stopped on fourth down. Revisiting this question makes a lot more sense to me right now. It feels kind of like an isolated instance um, with, with the Washington game kind of being the focal point. All right, second one from at Duck Fan Dan. How does Utah announcing that Cam Rising is out for the season affect Oregon's preparation for this big road game? How can Oregon start faster when playing in a tough environment? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. As Jared kind of hinted at, we are going to jump right into that part. Um, really quickly, the Cam Rising thing. Mm-hmm. I was kind of surprised that we got, I think even Whittingham kind of acknowledged like he wasn't necessarily wasn't sure he was going to bring this up at this point in the season, but after a big win on the road over USC to announce your quarterback, who's been kind of the big question mark around that program the entire season, seven weeks into the season to to kind of finalize that, that's certainly not insignificant. Bryson Barnes, though, man, like that guy's a gamer. Like you can't count mm-hmm. them out. The fact that what he was able to do on that last drive with his legs kind of made up for some strange clock management there. Um, but certainly significant. I mean, Cam Rising has been the quarterback two years in a row now that the conference champions and, and the year before the conference added all of these, you know, premier transfers. He was the first team all conference quarterback back in 21. So obviously a guy who can play Oregon fans know that full well from their last three games facing the Utes and how difficult that has been. Um, not having him on the field will be strange to a certain degree, certainly significant. Um, I'm going to guess that Oregon wasn't going to spend an incredible amount of time preparing for the possibility of rising play just because he hadn't played in six previous weeks. And you kind of know what you've got coming up here. So, um, but to, good on the Hutes for, I mean, this is pretty darn impressive if you just want to just off the cuff, like this part of the season, the way they performed without their quarterback and really with pretty mixed quarterback play. And last game with Barnes was by far the best quarterback play they've had all season. Um, mm-hmm. You don't count. You can't count out the Utes even even without being full strength, and they certainly aren't that right now. Yeah, I don't. I I don't think Oregon was really preparing for rising. 
Um, it's just been a very strange story uh, with rising and how Utah has handled it. Um, like the, the athletic article when Cam Rising finally came out and talked about his injury where it was, he went into all the details of what it was like and what he actually tore. And then the athletic article uh, with his doctor and he, and the doctor's like, yeah, no, this is like a 12 month recovery. And he tore his ACL and in January in the Rose bowl. And then all off season, uh, Utah's like, well, you, you never know. He could be ready for August. And then clearly now he's out for the year. It's just been a very strangely handled situation, but uh, Barnes has done well. Like Eric said, he had his best game of the season against USC, 235 yards, three tuts. Uh, he only has four in the season, and the last one before that came in week one against Florida, where I believe it was the first play of the season where he scored uh, – first or second play of the season where he scored like a flea flicker touchdown um, against Florida for the first touchdown. So it's, it's it's been a minute since they scored a passing touchdown, or at least Barnes has scored a passing touchdown. Um I'm going to go. I'm going to move on to the second part of this question of like how Oregon starts fast uh, in Utah. Um, just play their game. Look, it's going to be a very difficult environment. We just talked about that. Um, Rice Eccles in 21, the last time they were there, you know, didn't end great. Uh, they did not start fast in that game. Uh, I think they were completely, honestly, completely just outmanned at that point. A lot of, a lot of wide receiver injuries during that time. And Anthony Brown just, um, you know, had to go to, Dante Thornton, Troy Franklin as true freshman, Devin Williams going in there. Um, just a kind of a mess of an offensive game plan. But uh, in order to start fast, this is an opportunity for them to showcase just how good their offense is. Because this is a great Utah defense. We talked about it as well. We'll talk about it more this week. They have to stick to their script. And regardless if they don't start fast, I think Oregon's defense is going to be able to hang. You know, this might be like last year's game against Utah where it's in the 20s, and I don't think anybody's really going to come close to scoring like 40 points in this one. That's why the over-under is like 49 and a half. Like, I don't think a lot of people expect there to be a high-scoring profile in this game. But um, I think Oregon, if they just follow their script, they follow their game plan, they, they practice for the noise environment, which I'm sure they will, um, I think they'll get off to a hot start. It's just, you know, can a couple of these passes that go incomplete, like against Stanford, um, where one where a, a Bonex throw deep to Tez Johnson goes over his head, like that lands in his bread basket. It's a lot better of an offensive start. So some of it's just luck of the draw, but the, I think sticking to the game plan is what's going to make him get off to a hot start more than anything else. Cam Rising's been out all year. Um, they've, I think they've known this and they've just kind of, they didn't really want to talk about it. And they just did a really poor job of messaging. I mean, it was a really weird deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, how does that change anything? Like nothing. I mean, but that being said, people are going to look at Utah's schedule and go, oh, wow, they figured things out. They, they put up 34 against California two weeks ago. And then last weekend at USC, they put up 34 again. Um, you know, Barnes had his clearly his best performance, but. They also played two of the worst defenses in the country. USC's 107th, Cal's 89th. Um, they didn't play anybody of significance. Now their schedule, all, you know, they've done a heck of a job, and I'm not trying to disparage them at all because to to be six and one and 13th in the country and all the injuries that they have is pretty damn impressive. It speaks to the culture and the program that Whittingham has built. But they've also got a seven-point win at Baylor. They've got a seven-point win against UCLA. 
and a two-point win against USC. Any one of those goes the other direction, we're looking at a totally different record. We're totally looking at a totally different game in this one. Um, now, they've won. Utah's defense historically has been good. Um, but like what Eric said earlier in the season, you know, the podcast, like they've got some leaks and probably a lot of this is from just the pure craziness of the, the volume of injuries that they have suffered, you know, on both sides of the football, but defensively they've lost some dudes and important guys. So like, I, I kind of think this game's going to hit the over unless Oregon's defense plays lights out and limits Utah significantly from moving the football. I I don't think um, Oregon's going to put up 50 or 45, but in the 30s feels very realistic for Oregon right now. Um, they're, I think they're a, a much better offense than USC, and SC had 32 points and turnovers and poor execution, and they still had big scores. Um, I think Oregon can get to 32 points as long as they're healthy. Uh, what leads to that? It It's the scripted plays that Oregon does in the first quarter, you know, execute those well, hit a deep shot or two if you take them. And I, I almost think like Eric and I were talking about this during a game against Washington state. Like they weren't really trying to run the football against the Cougars. They just kept trying to throw, 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 throw. And then they finally figured out, Oh wow, let's, let's run the football. Like I know Utah's good against the run, but go to your, your bread's butter. Doug, uh, Howler of the athletic who covers ASU tweeted after the ASU pick six to, to win, you know, for Washington to win the game. Like something he said at that point moment was, I didn't understand why ASU went away from what they were really good at. And that's Scadaboo. And for Oregon, their offense is really good at running the football. And Bo Nix is a tremendous quarterback. He's a Heisman candidate and you need to sprinkle in the runs or the, the past, but your bread and butter last season and this season has been your run game. And if they stick to the run game, I, I think that opens up everything else and which should lead to a hot start for Oregon, but it's, it all comes down to execution. I mean, they, they've had their, their chances uh, in games previously. Bo Nix has missed a couple deep throws. Uh, Stanford was one in which he just didn't hit. And, you know, they could have had two touchdowns if that, played out that way and said they didn't and they trailed six nothing at the end of the first quarter but it's it's just going to come down to execution yeah and avoiding penalties feels critical too yeah Um, this last game in particular you saw some some kind of the reemergence of some offensive line issues in terms of illegal men downfield some false start stuff which you don't like seeing at home obviously uh road game in salt lake is going to provide some challenges there um, no, it's, it's, this is one where you do want to get off to a quick start too, just because if you think about how you want the game script to go, Utah, you'd much rather be playing with the lead against the Utes than from behind. If you're playing out of a hole against that team, I know that we're going to get to a question right now talking about the run game, but even with some, a real rash of injuries in the backfield, like the Utes are still able to manufacture a run game. So if this is not a team you want to fall behind because if you can put the pressure 
think about this USC game and what Utah was able to accomplish there. If you if you can create a 10, a 14-point lead and force Bryson Barnes to come back, obviously what he did in that last minute against USC is super impressive. But that's mm-hmm. that's that that's the uh, the script to win is what you saw happen with Oregon State against Utah, where the Beavers were able to play with that advantage. And the Utes really struggled to play from behind. All right, third one from at Grizzle Muffin. Great name. How do you think Landing and Lufoy game plan to stop Jackson and Vaki for Utah? Watching the USC game, those two were a killer one-two combo. Hashtag Ots and Audibles. We had, I thought we had to talk about Sione Vaki in this podcast, at least a little bit. That's it's, fine, yeah. This is cra- it's crazy what he's done. This is a converted defensive back who's like – we talked about Bucky Irving and, and maybe his candidacy for a, a Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Week. Like Vaki's probably one of the guys he has to contend with just because of the way he's performed and making it look so natural as a defensive back the last two weeks playing offense, being one of Utah's primary running backs, running for more than 100 yards um, in the game prior to this last week. And then this game against USC, having the long catch uh, down the sideline for the touchdown, catching another for a touchdown, uh, the, the footwork he had there, the change of direction. like. It's it's pretty cool seeing a defensive player move over um, and and have so much of an impact and for for the for the Utes and Whittingham it just feels par for the course of one man down they find a way to to manufacture something else so it's kind of been the story of their season encapsulated there um, to the question specifically about slowing those two down like Oregon's defensive line needs to get off blocks um, the Utes are are big and strong especially in the interior they've dealt with some injuries at tackle. Um, Jackson is a physical runner. He's a big physical guy. He is that yeah. kind of prototypical Utah running back that they always seem to have one or two of these guys. It's just these big, you know, get up, get them, you know, between the line of scrimmage, and it's they're going to fall forward for three to five yards basically every time. Um, and Vaki, Vaki shows a little bit of that, but he shows a lot of burst, and that guy is super versatile. And I will be curious mm-hmm. when we talk with um, uh, with our Ute reporter Steve Bartle later this week if kind of what the backstory is learn more about him but also like I wonder if this is just where he st- he sticks for his career because uh, through two weeks I know it's a little premature uh it's nine, looks, nine nine yards of carry man looks pretty good yeah that's all right that'll he's do. also playing 65 snaps on defense I mean yeah so it's not I mean it's not like he's just switched positions because he wasn't playing defensively he's playing yeah. both ways no, they didn't they just need running backs. It's yep. been uh, – I don't know if we've talked about it on this podcast, but, guys, they've had eight, nine players all go down with an injury, a season-ending injury, all impactful guys. Um, Barton was the most recent one, Lander Barton, their linebacker, obviously Cam Rising, uh, Brent Keithy, uh, old friend Micah Pittman. Uh, he's out for the season with an injury. Uh, Logan Fano, their defensive end, is out for the season with an injury. Then they lost two running backs. So – this is Kyle Whittingham. Yeah, no, it's a beat up team, and it's a no surprise here, but a wonderful coaching job from Kyle Whittingham, probably the best coach in the Pac-12. Mm-hmm. Um, and for their running back duo, you know, Jaquinta Jackson, and honestly, I'm, 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 if I'm Oregon, I'm more worried about um, Nate Johnson at quarterback. Every time I watch that they guy, every time he plays. Yeah. And they rotate them in. It's kind of similar to what, for, for those listening or watching, it's kind of similar to what Stanford did for the first half of the game where they would rotate some guys in and out at quarterback specifically. 
But Johnson is an electric athlete from the quarterback position. Um, and he's been kind of dinged up. And Bryce, Bryson Barnes has taken a, a kind of a bigger role recently in the Utah offense. But if Johnson is healthy, like he's going to be he's going to be very tough. It's a lot of RPOs with him. It's a lot of um, runs outside the tackle, some bootlegs, just some naked bootlegs, too, where it's like we're just going to run this time around with Johnson. Um, and I, I really like his play. but. Uh, stopping Jaquina Jackson is going to be a, a, a tall order. Six foot two, two hundred twenty nine pound running back. One of my favorite running backs in the league. He's just an absolute moose back there, bowling people over. Um, Oregon's defense has been pretty good against the run. There's been moments where it kind of seems like that could be a potential issue down the line, uh, and I think we're going to find that out this weekend if it is a potential issue because. If Utah gets a grasp of this defense and says, "Hell, oh, wow, we can run on them," they're going to run. They're they're not even going to think about throwing, and we'll just have to see if Oregon's defensive line holds up to it. I mean, they have the dudes to do it. They have a plethora of dudes, but it's been inconsistent at points. Teams have gone away from it, like Washington during the Washington game. Seemed like they were getting good success going off tackle on Oregon's defense, which I think is the the, the epitome of the weak point in the run D. And then they started to go away from it on those back to back three and outs. They I don't think they ran the ball even once. Just three straight passes both times. So um, I, I don't expect Utah to go away from whatever is working because they they don't really have a choice to go to anything else. If something is working, like that's that's what they're going to go do. So I'm interested to see that, and um, it's just going to be really tough trio of people to stop even Bryson Barnes is good on the ground so uh, it's going to be a lot of run this could be a very very quick game yeah I mean to, to stop Utah you have to make them one dimensional and the one dimension you have to take away is the run game and you do that and you you make Barnes throw the football or if it's Nate Johnson throw the football you know more often than not you're going to limit Utah's playmaking ability. They don't have a lot of speed. They don't have like that special playmaker that we've seen Utah have the last couple of years in the passing game this season. Um, you know, they just, they don't have that big playmaker. Pittman was maybe supposed to be that guy and he never really materialized and then he got hurt. Um, Sione Vaki kind of that guy right now, but it's two weeks. Um, and, how much can you rely on him to, to be out there? Um, and this goes back to Oregon, the question about the, you know, the, the good start offensively for Oregon. Like if Oregon can come out and score on three of its first four possessions, whether it be two touchdowns and a field goal or ideally three touchdowns, and all of a sudden Utah looks up at the scoreboard and goes, wow, it's middle of the second quarter and we're down – 17 to three or 17 to you know seven a two score game here that will force utah to get away from because i agree jared with jared like they're going to run the football they're going to try and run the football and that could force them to maybe get away from that a little bit and play into their more of their weaker points of their offense than their backbone they've always been able to run the football they've always had good running backs it seems like every year a running back gets hurt for them and they've just got some dude waiting in the wings that steps in and it's like, oh yeah, he's really good too. Here we go. And that's what's happened this season. 
And and for Oregon, it's just you you've got a game plan around their run game and make them throw the football. I I think we're going to see a lot of one on one coverage, a lot of press coverage from Oregon in this one. Um, guys, you know, loading up the box and just really daring Utah to to air it out and throw it deep uh, against Oregon secondary. Throwing it deep is what you'd like to force them to do. Um, they have a little bit of. I mean, it's it's not. A Dalton Kincaid, certainly. Um, but in terms of guys that can create mismatches and have some speed, like Money Parks is a guy that you go watch and he's really explosive and they get creative in terms of getting him at end arounds, getting the ball in space, uh, taking advantage of that. Um, Vaki to me is like a really pivotal part in this game because to Matt's point, the offense does lack a little of that pass punch, but there's a reason that Barnes threw for so many yards last week, and a lot of the explosives were to him out of the backfield. He was really explosive, and I'll be curious to see kind of if they can expand his role and, and how Oregon defends him because um, this is a guy who, against USC, who has great athletes. I'm not saying that they're really well coached necessarily on defense. I'm not saying that they have better athletes in Oregon, but it's not like these are – are two and three star recruits. These are four and four four star athletes out here, and and Vaki was running away from those guys, right? So like it it I, it looks like some of that stuff translates, and I will be very curious to see how Oregon handles all of that. Again, I think if you can, I think the offense really is the story here. If Oregon can can create some separation early and force Utah to get away from its run game and force it to become something where to Matt's point, they have to try to stretch the field vertically. I, I, I'm skeptical of Utah's ability to to do that consistently enough to, to to rally and come back and win this game. But I just in general don't want to count out Utah based upon what we've seen this season. I intend to pick Oregon in this game, but Utes are <laughs> Utes are a tough task no matter what, no matter any of the circumstances. You don't want to overlook this program. I feel like this is a game where if Oregon wins it, it's going to be because of what they did in the first half, and they create a situation where Utah has to play from behind and trying to play catch up and that, you know, games are, you know, games are won or lost different parts of, the, of play. And I feel like just the hot start for Oregon could be the, you know, the deciding factor of, of this one. If, if they can pull it off and if they can't, you know, we might be in a slugfest down, you know, to the wire. And I don't, it's hard to bet against Utah in Salt Lake city in a one score game at home. Like that, that's really hard to bet against. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll uh, wrap up the second half of the Odds and Audibles podcast. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. 
Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Three questions in, two more to go. Next one from at Hodges underscore Ryan. On a scale of 1 to 10, how concerned are you with the relatively low number of turnovers created by the defense? And what do you attribute that low number to? Hashtag Odds and Audible's. Um, on a scale of one to ten, uh, three and a half. Not it's not it's not a huge worry for me. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you have, I, I mean, it's so turnovers are so random in football. Anybody who watches a lot of football goes, "Hey, like this game." Or like, look at Oregon from this perspective against Texas Tech. They forced four turnovers. The rest of the season, they forced three. They forced one in conference play. Like it. It's just not a whole lot of rhyme and reason to that. Some of that obviously is opponent based. Is like Tyler Shuck was in a spot there where he had to try to make the like, think about those turnovers that were forced. Two of those came in the very end of the game where it was gut check time, and Shuck was in a position where he needed to. The last one obviously just needed to chuck it. The second one, great pressure from Doralis, but obviously there's a level of urgency from Shuck where he feels like he has to make a play, and so maybe he's a little bit more aggressive in his approach, like. That that's the type of thing that goes into turnovers to me more than anything else is like how you know the, the opposing offense plays a big role in that too. Like this is why I thought the Washington State game presented a, an opportunity to force some turnovers because I, I figured Cam Ward would be in the mode he was in where he's like I've got to make a play happen. Like we're not going to win this game unless I'm out there making plays happen. So what we saw, frankly, I, I hate to bring it up, but Justin Herbert in the second half against the Chiefs of like we have to make something happen. I'm going to force some things, and he threw the ball into some tough spots, and there were turnovers. Um, that's more right. of what I see on the field in terms of how turnovers are created. I don't think there's like a, they're not calling the turnover defensive plays or they're just not doing this or that. Like, I think a lot of it is based upon the opportunities presented to you and Oregon hasn't been presented with as many opportunities as you would expect in some of these games. Like you think about the plays I have made, it's been like Jaleel Florence is just right in the right spot in Penix. Either Badunze runs the wrong route, slips coming out of his break, whatever it is, and it's just a wide open catch for Florence on the sideline. That's how turnovers are mm-hmm. typically forced. Some of them are pure aggression turnovers where you're getting upfield and you make the turnover happen. Um, frankly, it's it's surprising we haven't seen more of those considering the sack totals these last couple of weeks. But it only takes one play, and and Bryson Barnes isn't the biggest guy, so maybe this is a week where you get home and you either force him to put a ball up in the air, or you you get home and knock the ball loose. I don't know, but um, I'm not super concerned. I would attribute the low number more to circumstance than anything else, um, and and honestly, kind of like just the not being. I, okay, they've had seven this year. How many more like super close turnovers were, did they even have? Like it's not. Like, I don't think there's been like. Like if you were to do this on an opportunity-based percentage of like the rate of converting turnovers, yeah. it doesn't feel like they're leaving a lot out there is my point. Uh, I feel like every game there's a drop pick or something like that. Um, not a lot of fumbles. Uh, like against Washington State, like Nico Reed really had an opportunity. Um, against Colorado, Jamal Hill and Kyrie Jackson both dropped an interception. Um I'm not. I'm not worried either. I completely agree with you, Eric. I, right now, I'm at a three on the scale. Um, I also think it's a lot about the the types of quarterbacks they've played and the types of offenses they've played. Like the quarterbacks that they've played this season have been pretty darn good. Shador Sanders, Cam Ward, and Michael Penix. And I know they got to Shuck, but Shuck is a average Power Five quarterback. Like 
these offenses also don't really put the ball in jeopardy. Um, even like Stanford's offense doesn't really put the ball in jeopardy. It's these quick hitters where you give the ball and space to people and hopefully they make you uh, miss tackles. But I think it'll come. And if it doesn't, it's fine. I also think it's a little bit of the luck of the draw. Like Oregon's had a lot of sacks this season. I think they've only had one forced fumble sack, uh, technically two with the Bryce Betcher one. But um, the other one was Jamal Hill, where they did actually force a turnover there against Shuck. But there's been a lot of opportunities to bring down people and just have the ball come out. And it just hasn't happened. And that's credit to the bulk security of the quarterbacks. And but like uh, on Brandon Dorless's missed sack uh, on Saturday, that was a, a huge swipe down, big old bear claw down there to try to punch the, the football out. Didn't happen. Um, so I'm at a three. Really not worried about it. Um, yeah, not worried. It's going to happen at some point. If they were giving up big chunks of yards and a bunch of points and they weren't creating turnovers, like, sure, get let's get worried. But they're getting stops. They get a lot of three and outs. They force their, their opponent to punt. Um, they've, they've won on fourth down a couple times. Like Turnovers would be great. It would be awesome. Um, but there are a lot of other concerns that you could have with this defense than the lack of turnovers. And they're still averaging, like, what, 15 or 16 points a game right now? Like, when when your defense is that good, like, it'd be nice to have turnovers, but you're getting the ball anyways. So, yeah. I acknowledge though that it is a low number. So like I I, I get that fans are going to be absolutely aware of the fact that it's a lower number than you think, and that they've had one mm-hmm. turnover force since Texas Tech. I think uh, no, they've had more because they had a couple against Hawaii. But it, it's it's not been very much in conference. But I think it's just been the one at Washington. I just don't think it's like it's not like a, oh the team's not making three point shots. Why aren't they making three point shots? Because the team can't make three point shots. It's like it's more of like a, oh the opposing team is not giving you opportunities really to make those plays. Is more of how I see it in terms of just I just don't think there's been that many opportunities. I mean there probably have been a couple each game, but I don't know. I I'm, I'm not. Over it would just play. it's there's not a lot. Opposing teams aren't really taking too many shots, and but there's like a handful of ones like the the, the three I mentioned where it's like that would add to the list. Some people probably would feel a little bit better with whatever Oregon's yeah. turnovers are, plus I mean, three or four, rather even, than what it is now. Even Nico's was like, that would have been a really good play if Nico had made that. He's yep. a bigger yep, receiver, basically kind of just pulls it o- over the top from him, just for, based from a size perspective. Um, mm-hmm. Good position, though. All right, last one from at Ross underscore Maselich. More than halfway through the year, how would you assess how the p- new position coaches have done this far? He also adds on-field and recruiting. Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Thanks, Ross. Um, like, I still think the offensive line, which probably most weeks gets my lowest offensive game grade, but I still think they're playing at a really high level, especially with all the new pieces. And sure, sure, there are things that you can quibble with here in terms of eh, there's been some unsavory plays where there's touchdowns wiped off because a guy is an RPO and a guy leaves early and ends up downfield and they and, and you know rather than put the ball in Bucky's stomach, Bo pulls it and, and throws it and it becomes a, a an illegal man downfield. You still see that penalty. I think that's tough. The 
default starts and holds. Some of those are are tough sometimes on on the, like one of the holds, the one on the ultimate ended up being a touchdown to Troy that got pulled off on the Ajani hold was like Bo ran like 20 yards, one direction, 20 yards, the other. That's like really difficult for an offensive lineman to stay engaged there and not end up holding with all of that change of direction. So it's like some of it's that I just think in general, the offensive lines played really well. Um, I think Jackson powers Johnson has been incredible. Um, I think the guards have both quietly been better than I had expected just because those are players who kind of had some up and down play in the past. Not that it's been perfect. Um, so, yeah, I think Alik Terry's done a great job with this offensive line. Um, and then recruiting, I, I don't think there's any question. It's been good. Um, you know, it's in- always interesting when a guy comes in without a ton of history in this part of the country. I know Alik was here previously under previous staff for a couple of years, so there were some of those connections. But three of the four commitments are basically in-state kids. I mean, Fox Crater is in Vancouver. That's basically right over the border. That's basically an Oregon kid. And then, obviously, the, the two in-state kids with Ferguson and, and Brooks. So. Mm-hmm. that's good. And then, of course, you can't complain when he goes across the country and pulls in one of the best offensive tackles from literally the a hotbed that every SEC school is trying to pull kids from. So uh, I think that, that's gone great. And I'll, I guess I'll, I'll stop talking and let you guys talk more about Chris Hampton. But um, I think very highly of how both of them have done so far. Yeah, I think, I think highly of how Terry has done as well. Um, it's a difficult position to coach, and it's even more difficult when you had a guy go – a guy leave and now it's a whole new group um replacing four starters is very hard but uh hampton i think has has done fine um i think it always helps when your safeties are just better than they were the season before um but if you look at guys like steve stevens and the development he's had over the course of the off season um after matthew pallets left and chris hampton came in um i think that that's been a true statement or a testimony to Hampton and his ability to develop uh, secondary players. He did a very good job at Tulane and doing it. Um, and recruiting-wise, this is a good safety class for Oregon. Um, I brought in some dudes. Uh, Kingston Lopa, I think, is the highest-rated uh, commit for Oregon as a safety. Um, and I think that'll be a spot where he does well. I don't think that's a spot where you absolutely must have some, some dudes going into every recruiting class because safety is... I don't know. It's just one of those positions where you can rotate some guys in and out, but always helps to have an elite safety. And I think um, Hampton and the game plan that he's delivered for Tysheep Johnson and Evan Williams and Steve and BA when he was still with the team. Like, I think I think it's been more than more than good enough. I'm excited to see what he does in uh, like over this off season and going into year two. Uh, I don't have much more to say because you guys have covered it. Um... I, I think both guys have done a good job. I think both guys have inherited really talented units and they're kind of doing what would be expected of them new or not. Um, I think we'll see what happens when these position groups, these position rooms have some turnover and we see the new faces roll in the guys that these coaches have recruited to bring in and do they fit? And, you know, these coaches have brought in guys themselves that are playing in this game. That has to be acknowledged. You know, they've, they've added portal guys um, to the mix, which are players they targeted. Um, but the true answer to this question won't be known for two or three more years, I think, of recruiting and player development and so forth. All right. Uh, that's going to do it for us here on the Ots and Audibles podcast. 
thank you for submitting your questions. We will be back uh, tomorrow on Tuesday with a recap of Dan Lanning's Monday night press conference plus player interviews. Um, we have efforted to get Steve Bartle from the Ute Zone on the podcast. We're waiting to hear back of a time that works there. And then hopefully uh, we get that locked in. And then on Thursday, we will have our game preview and game picks for this week. Leading up to Oregon at Utah, 1230 kick on Fox, which, by the way, uh, Gus and Joe Clatt, they've made the change. They're coming mm-hmm. to Salt Lake City. Uh, so there big, you go. big number one crew for Fox will be calling the game. Uh, until the next one, you've been listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.